Welcome to another edition of the Vince in the Bay podcast. This episode will be the first in a series of episodes that feature interviews conducted during the 2018 RSA Security Conference here in the Bay in San Francisco from April 16th through April 20th. And to kick off this series on RSA 2018, I present to you an interview with Katie Masaurus, CEO and founder of Luta Security. Enjoy. Here at RSA 2018. Now, oh, wait, I got to get your, um, it's Katie. Mm-hmm. <sighs> like a dinosaur. Monosaurus. <laughs> so close. No, not it. Not, not really. It's Masaurus. Ma. Okay. It's like a dinosaur. Katie Masaurus Rex. Masaurus. Okay. Okay. Katie Masaurus. I figured out how to pronounce Giannis Antetokounmpo. Okay. That beats my name. <laughs> it took me a long time to figure that out. So I think I can get Montesaurus. No, it's Masaurus. <laughs> I love how I got extra consonants in there. That's amazing. Yeah. No. Masaurus. Right. Katie Masaurus. Katie Masaurus. And if you say it all at once, Katie Masaurus Rex, just like a dinosaur. Katie Masaurus Rex. Right. I spoke earlier in the week with um, Jesse Irwin Mm -hmm. and her handle is Jesse Soros Rex. Yes. So you're you're my second uh, dinosaur. True. That I've interviewed so far. Well, you know, and uh, Jessie is is amazing, and uh, she's she's in you know my my lady gang of uh, of infosec people, and so we we actually uh, joke about the fact that her handle and my last name uh, were all raptors of some kind. Yeah, you know? yeah. We dubbed ourselves, you know, m- me and Jesse and a bunch of other folks, um, Wendy Nather, Jen Ellis, um, Karen Elizari, Amit Elizari. Um, we're all this like security Voltron crew. You know, we meet up for brunch at these things or, you know, sometimes a dinner or something like that. And we tweeted it out a few years ago, actually. And Jennifer Granick was also uh, at one of these brunches. And we basically, you know, we get together and it's usually before the madness of RSA week or before the madness of DEF CON, Black Hat DEF CON, we try and kind of center ourselves together with folks that we truly respect, that we have this camaraderie with, and that together, I mean, our powers combined, pretty fantastic. So yeah, we are a complete lady gang. Oh, and I saw Amit, I saw her presentation at B-Sides. Yeah, she's on fire. Yeah. She's She's great. I actually mentioned her in my presentation today. I saw at RSA. I was there. Yeah. I saw it. Yes. Yeah, your presentation was great. So let's talk about that. We're, you're here at RSA. You just presented earlier today. What were you talking about today at the at the session earlier? Well, I was talking about some of the common misconceptions, pitfalls, um, the myths, and and the legends about bug bounties. You know how best to use them, and what are some of the perverse incentives that have been introduced into you know the bug bounty ecosystem since you know it started getting really popular. And I'm partially to blame slash, you know, to credit for how popular it's gotten over the years. But I'm looking at it from a perspective of someone who cares about this ecosystem very much and knows that we have the power to shape this market. And the way I see it being shaped right now, I'm a little concerned. But we do have an opportunity to turn it around. And that was what my talk was really about, was like, there's some good uses for it. There are some misapplications of it. And it will not cure all of your security woes. Because honestly... 
if the if the whole problem was just we need to find out about the vulnerabilities, we need to pay people to tell us what's broken, that problem was already solved with pen testing. And it was, you know, it was solved with pen testing. And we didn't see everyone suddenly becoming more secure. Um, so just crowdsourcing it and opening it up to the public is just a broader application of the same principle. It's not going to get you to be secure overnight. And we're definitely seeing um, some some misleading uh, statistics around how successful and how easy running a bug bounty program really is. Um, one of your slides uh, has these three different panels where it talks about there's vulnerability disclosure, penetration testing, and bug bounty programs. And under the disclosure part, you, you talk about the, the ISO 29147 and ISO 30111. What the hell are those? These are two ISO standards that are very closely related. First of all, what's ISO? ISO, International Standards Organization. So everything from the size of A4 paper and how, you know, uh, the threads on screws to uh, security standards like the ones um, that were mentioned there. Uh, so I actually uh, started working on those ISO standards about a decade ago. And this was when I was at Microsoft. And I was sent to find out what was going on with a proposed, quote unquote, responsible disclosure ISO standard. And so... In my naivete at that time, I thought, well, I'm just going to go and explain to them how hackers don't follow ISO standards and that they should move along. Um, What I found when I got there was that not only was the standard very overscoped in terms of uh, trying to dictate behaviors of all players, all roles in this ecosystem, but it also had unrealistic expectations written into it. And this very, very first draft that I saw way back in you know, 2007, 2008 was this idea that all critical vulnerabilities should be patched within 24 hours, but there was no definition of critical. There was no realistic way to even gauge what a patch would really mean. You know, would it be taken? a system offline if you can't patch it? I mean, what what does this even mean? And what I found was while there are people who are true technical experts who participate in the ISO standards bodies and ISO making process, there are also people who are just really good at making ISO standards, right? So they might have a little bit of a technical flavor of heard of the subject at hand, but they don't necessarily have the practical experience to really implement something that's meaningful. So what I thought was going to be a one meeting course correction and maybe cancel that thing because it sounds crazy turned into me becoming, you know, not only one of the lead contributors to making that standard better, but then eventually becoming uh, one of the co-editors along with Art Mannion of those standards. So the first versions of these were published in 2014. And then Art Mannion and I became co-editors of the revisions, which should be coming out either later this year or early next year. And the revisions are basically expansions and clarifications about things like multi-vendor vulnerability coordination. So think meltdown inspector level type of issues or heartbleed level issues where you have to bring in a number of different organizations, um, a number of different response teams, and you have to coordinate ahead of public release so that ideally as many people are ready for the public release as possible, as many patches have been created across different organizations, or in the case of maybe it's a shared library, as many organizations are ready to roll out the fixed version so they get early versions of it. And that's just to try and limit that window of exploitation and exposure. Because as you know, you can make a patch available, but it's that time between a patch is available and a vulnerability is known and that patch is applied that you have a huge you know, opportunity for uh, a lot of attacks to happen. And we saw that happen with WannaCry. I'm curious. Um, 
this is usually my one of my first questions, but what's what's your background? How did you get into information security? What was like? I know in your talk you you you, you mentioned that you grew up being a hacker and being inspired by uh, war games. I think it was. And uh, tell me a little bit about your 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 path to to where you are now. So how it started was uh, the actually the best way for me to describe this is that my intro into computing programming, hacking, was nearly identical to every other hacker that I've ever met. It was, had a computer at a young age, maybe a little socially awkward, and just kind of got into it, just went into hyper-focus mode and was very self-taught and self-driven. Um, so the joke that I have, you know, especially when, um, you know, when I'm sitting on a panel and everyone's introducing themselves and their backgrounds is, um, you know, my background and his background are identical. We just downloaded different avatars for this play in the game. Um, so, yeah, I started programming when I was eight years old. My mother had bought me a Commodore 64 and I, uh, I had it came with Pac-Man and I thought it was, you know, basically like an Atari. And I was going to, you know, OK, I was sick of Pac-Man. So I asked her for another game. My mom was a single mom and she had spent a lot of money on that computer. And she said, you know what? Here's the deal. That was a lot of money. I can't afford to buy you any more uh, games to play with it. But it came with this book. So my mom literally handed me the manual, which was a basic programming manual, and said, read the fucking manual. But she was, you know, nicer than that because she was a lady. And uh, so she, so uh, I taught myself to program from there. Um, I was fortunate in that I grew up in Arlington, Massachusetts, and we had two computer labs at our high school. Um, we had computer science classes at our high school. And I think it was partly because, you know, we grew up in the shadow of MIT and Harvard. And so a lot of smart graduates settled in the area and sent their kids to public school. So we were incredibly lucky. There was a computer team in high school. And that's where I learned assembly language. Um, we'd have different exercises every week, you know, where we would learn. We'd learn a little lisp. We'd learn a little assembly. Like we would do all these, you know, different programming exercises. And then we competed as a team. So we went to, um, I remember getting in a bus from Arlington, Massachusetts, driving down to, um, I think it was Alexandria, Virginia, to their high school, and we did a competition. It was American Computer Science League, and we took home a trophy. Oh, and we cool. took home, you know, prize money and stuff. So yeah, this was, um, and this was very, very lucky because, you know, at that time, there weren't that many computer labs available for adults, let alone for children, you know, mm -hmm. and we had a lot of free range. And I remember being in high school and, you know, Tetris was loaded on all of the uh, all the PCs in the PC lab. And I like playing Tetris. So did everybody else. I realized that there was an application uh, logic flaw in Tetris where if you said yes to the question of do you have a joystick or not? For your listeners who were very young, a joystick was basically a game controller that looked like a stick. Okay, uh, that's my old lady voice. I'm like, yeah. So, um, so if you said yes, but there was no joystick present, um, the logic of Tetris, they would wait for input. So it slowed down the fall of the blocks to the point where I could get over a million scores. So I wanted everyone to know that I had hacked the whole lab. So instead of just doing subtle, you know, game scores that were higher than everybody else's so that people would think that I legit got those scores, I wanted everyone to know that I had hacked those mothers. So I literally <laughs> went around the whole lab, replaced every high score with ones that were over a million points and put in my name as things like I hack big time or I am the super hacker and like all these things because I wanted them to know that I had 
defeated the logic of, of the game, right? So the, you know, fun things like that. And then I was lucky enough to dial into uh, the Works BBS, the bulletin board system um, in the local Boston area, happened to be the same BBS where a lot of the guys from the loft were dialing into. So my natural curiosity coupled with opportunity, location, 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 and then you know going and meeting up um, in these physical meetups where we would exchange ideas, we'd pick locks, we'd maybe make a couple of free phone calls, that kind of thing. And at the time, I was like, well, this is really fun. But there was no real way to make a living doing it. This predated the the big, you know, security industry that we know today. Things were just getting started. And certainly there wasn't a clear path for a hacker to make money on their skills. So I did what, you know, any reasonable person who, you know, had a uh, kind of a bent for, for curing diseases. And I, I studied molecular biology and biochemistry and mathematics. And I worked on the Human Genome Project at MIT. And when I was there, um, I was actually part of the one of the first bioinformatics groups. And working there, um, one, you know, I was, uh, we were lucky that we had top end equipment. So everything that we were using to program was, you know, we, we had deck alphas on our desks, right, as our desktop machines. And these were screamingly fast machines, you know, server class machines that were just our desktops. We were moving terabytes of data and analyzing it before any notion of big data was really around. So we were breaking things. Every emerging technology we would use to its limits and break, right? Every backup system, um, every, um, you know, limitations of cabling. Like we were literally pioneering all of this stuff. And luckily, um, you know, I was able to kind of figure out that there might be an additional career path for me back towards the computing end of things. And so I sort of meandered back that way via becoming a systems administrator there. And then I became a systems administrator over at the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT. And that was when we were uh, not only landing some Mars rovers on the moon, so this was like late 90s, but MIT had a policy of no firewalls. So as a systems administrator, I was basically trying to defend machines that were sitting on a very, very high throughput bandwidth backbone of the internet. Um, and they were being slapped onto the raw internet um, with hardly any patching because they were being set up by the professors or the grad students or the undergrads who happened to be working in the lab. And I literally had to defend them from attack. So I became very good at attacking my own network and, you know, working with the folks to close the holes. Um, I remember at one point there was a professor who I knew he had guests on his uh, particular Solaris box. And I was like, hey, buddy, uh, we need to, you know, we need to clean you up. And he's like, oh, they're not bothering me. And I said, well, they could. They could end up, you know, doing something, doing some damage. Uh, I know they're pivoting out of your machine and they're attacking some networks that we don't want attacked. And so can we please just go ahead? Can you just give me your root password and I'll, I'll go look around and see what I can do? And he was like, no, no, no. My work is too important. And they're not bothering me. I have backups. I don't care. So I went back to my desk and I hacked him. 
And I changed his root password and I cleaned out some accounts that I found and whatnot. You know, there was there was no real need at the time to do really advanced rootkit stuff. I mean, especially, you know, these were machines that that were probably being owned by hobbyists anyway um, and being used to pivot to other attacks. So it was it was reasonable to clean it up that way. And he comes running down the hall. He's like, you're right. You're right. They changed my root password. My God, you know, the hackers, they're after me. And I'm like, yeah, they are. Here's your new root password. And next time I ask you for your help, you pretty you pretty much should give it to me because seriously, um, I am not the only you know potential disruptor on this network. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's that's the long and short story of how I got you know sort of rerouted in my career back into doing computer security, doing hacking for a living, and really building that empathy of having to defend networks and mm-hmm. knowing that it can be complicated and that you can't always do all the best practices that are recommended at once. It might be technology um, you know, is not quite there to help you defend your network, or it could be policy-driven, which it was in the case of MIT, because they really wanted the network to, to you know, live in the true spirit of open exchange of ideas. And that's why there was no firewall rule. Which is, you know, in in this day and age sounds ridiculous, but I understood where they were coming from. It just was really, really hard to defend. Um, I know you've mentioned that for the past 10 years, you've been on the policy end of things and you're you're kind of not practicing as much anymore. How do you grapple with that? You obviously have the background and the knowledge and your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on to be able to talk on policy with, with authority and stuff. But do you ever feel like you're lagging behind in, in the t- on the technical side of things? Um, or, or does that bother you? Or do you even care at this point? Or, or are you still practicing your, your, your skills, if, for lack of a better word? So it's an interesting question. So I, I stopped being a professional penetration tester about a decade ago. So I knew I wanted to do more strategy work. And so I took the job at Microsoft as a security strategist, knowing that I was going to be hanging up my attack tools, at least for a while. And thinking, well, we'll see how this goes. We'll see if I feel like I'm making a significant contribution doing this. But honestly, it wasn't that I was burnt out of hacking. I was burnt out of finding the same vulnerabilities over and over again without seeing any, you know, any real progress or motion in the direction of people getting better at security systematically or holistically. Um, I was seeing the same classes of vulnerabilities over and over again. And I was also seeing the commoditization of penetration testing. Like we were, you know, we were hardcore at stake penetration testers, um, you know, testing things at the application layer before really any other uh, company was. And we pioneered that area. And what I was seeing was as more and more web applications became popular, more and more web app pen tests were the things that our customers needed. They're very boring. They're actually quite boring in a lot of cases. So I was getting bored. So when I made the switch to strategy, I thought, maybe this is temporary. Maybe I'll go back into it. Maybe I'll be sick of this. But I realized that I was really good at reverse engineering the organizations where I sat, figuring out what the leverage points were, and hacking from the inside at at an organizational level. And the things I saw that were opportunities were things like creating a uh, vulnerability research team 
at Microsoft, like I had done at Symantec. So enabling the internal bug hunters to have a coordinated way to report vulnerabilities to others where they didn't have to do it on their own. Right. And that was Microsoft vulnerability research. That was, you know, I founded that in 2008, shortly after I got to Microsoft. You know, I got there in 2007. And that was actually, you know, uh, conceptually, it was a precursor to uh, to Project Zero. You know, we were looking for vulnerabilities in third party products, reporting them to other companies in order to secure the platform, um, you know, of our users. So I found other outlets and it wasn't so much that I was stopping doing the hacking, I was looking at it from a perspective of how do I enable myself and others to make a bigger impact that hopefully sticks and moves us in this direction as opposed to us just finding the same vulnerabilities over and over again, the same types of issues. And what's depressing about this is here I am more than a decade after I allegedly retired from hacking and I still see over and over again, some of the same vulnerabilities that I could easily find today with, without having updated my skill set significantly. Now, that being said, I knew that there was a need for technology to policy translators because what I was seeing was I was seeing a wave of not just weird ISO standards, but a wave of regulation and legislation that was going to potentially eclipse the damage, you know, to, that that uh, that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act (CFAA) and Digital Millennium Copyrights Act (DMCA) possibly eclipse the chilling effect in terms of damage to the security research community. Um, did you? Uh, there's a there's a Georgia law that was just yeah, passed. Yeah, I saw that. That was a knee jerk reaction, and it's in that exact same vein. And what's crazy about that law, you know, that that. If, effectively um, is even more uh, chilling, I would say, against security research than the CFAA and DMCA currently are. Really? I, I, feel, I feel, I read it, and I feel like it's just like a redundant version of it, but, but, it, but for their state. However, you know, the, the issues there is that, look, I have a phrase, you know, accidents happen. I used to live on O'Farrell Street, O apostrophe Farrell Street in San Francisco, when I would legit fill out my address at certain forums, that apostrophe would trigger a verbose, verbose SQL er, uh, error coming back to me. So I knew that there was a SQL injection vulnerability. Now, I pursued it no further. However, if I had wanted to report it to somebody, I mean, half the time, somebody would probably threaten me with, with legal action. So the, the whole issue there is that I don't want people to be impeded by fear of legal prosecution. And every time there are new laws enacted on these books, I see the next generation of hackers or even the current generation of hackers pulling back from disclosure. And I know that, you know, one of the things that Microsoft, you know, was worried about, especially when I first joined, was people dropping zero day. And I said, zero day is not your worst nightmare when it comes to disclosure. Non-disclosure is your worst nightmare. That means there was a bug that is discoverable by somebody on the outside and they are either afraid to tell you about it or they can't be bothered to go through the, uh, you know, explaining to you and the back and forth and, and all that entails or they are keeping it for other reasons. And so essentially every single new piece of legislation and regulation that I see that presents in a way that would discourage disclosure and discourage um, incident response activities, 
I look at that as it's my duty as a person who understands this technology, understands the problems that can go along with the scale of trying to respond to these things, um, and understands that fear factor coming from the researcher perspective, um, that I feel like I have to work with other you know, other members of the technical community to educate lawmakers and regulators. And that's how I ended up working on the Wassenaar arrangement, um, eventually being asked by the U.S. State Department to join the official delegation to renegotiate the Wassenaar arrangement in person. So I was honored to be included in, uh, you know, in the official U.S. delegation to go renegotiate. But it took the efforts of not just me, but so many members of the technical community speaking up and saying that these export control regulations, um, if enforced, would not just impede vulnerability coordination, but they would impede incident response like the real time um, response of things like WannaCry. If you cannot exchange freely samples, not just malware samples, but samples of command and control software that you are in the middle of analyzing to try and sinkhole an attack in progress, if you can't pass that stuff around without having to fill out an export control uh, you know, um, application ahead of time, you will cripple the Internet's ability to defend itself. And so being able to intervene in those scenarios was something that I thought was very important. And it was um, something that I know that more and more technical folks like me have been getting into. Um, and I'm glad for it because, frankly, there aren't enough of us who are willing to do this kind of work to go around. And I can't comment on everything, right? I can't uh, weigh in on all of the different bills that are, that are coming into play or the regulations um, here and abroad. Right. So I do my best. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, how do I feel about not hacking anymore for a living? Um, I feel like while I will always miss the thrill of getting up in the morning and knowing I'm going to break into stuff today, because um, that thrill, uh, you know, if you've never done it before, I highly recommend it um, legally, of course, you know, against something that you're authorized to do. But it is it is something I, I miss. But in terms of keeping up with what the latest developments are, there are folks, there's a very tiny group of people in the world at any given time who are at the forefront of what I consider, you know, the cutting edge of security research. And they are as close to our, you know, professors emeritus in our very young field um, as we can get. And so I follow folks like that and I, you know, discuss with them what their latest, you know, research is. Um, and what's really funny about that is that the patterns of how they work and what they're, you know, what they're capable of is, has been the subject of some of my, you know, some of my research on the vulnerability economy and exploit market that I did with MIT Sloan School and Harvard Kennedy School a few years ago. Um, but it is, it's really, it's about looking at that top tier researcher and seeing not just how long they stay active in that, you know, top tier realm um, and what are some of the behavioral reasons why they transition out of being at the very top of, you know, the technical food chain at any given time. There are very few individuals who transcend a, a career at that top level longer than seven years. 
And there's a few different reasons for that, right? The technology changes and gets, you know, harder and harder. They may stay uh, looking for zero days, but they may step down what technology they're looking at. So where they might have been able to find them in traditional, you know, uh, desktop or server architectures as the mitigations got better, they stepped it down to phones. As those mitigations got better, they stepped it down to cars or IoT. So they still might be operating at the same skill level they were before enhanced mitigations were uh, hit those other platforms but those are the you know that's one way that that folks who um, stay active you know in terms of of bug hunting stay viable for longer than about seven years but on average it's about seven years that's actually how long I was a professional pen tester which is a funny thing so oh so you've you've now been a policy person longer than you were a pen tester at this point. I wouldn't even call myself a policy person. Like I, I specifically took a role as a policy officer at my last startup because okay. I saw there was this wave of regulation and I said, look, you know, I will talk to people about, you know, building their capacity to, to be ready for vulnerability coordination and bug bounty programs. But really um, where I see the big threats are uh, over-regulating this this space, and if I don't solve this problem now, you won't even have a business model to you know to to engage in. Um, and so, I deliberately chose a policy role for that. But I I wouldn't even call myself a policy person. I am, I don't know. I if I were to label myself now, I would label myself entrepreneur. Okay. Yeah. And you're an entrepreneur, and you're. Uh, firm is Luta Security. That's right. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Perfect. Finally. Perfectly. Finally. Perfectly. Yes. What the hell does Luta mean? So my mother was born on the island 40 nautical miles north of Guam in the northern Mariana Islands. And on the map, that island is labeled Rota after a town in Spain. However, the native Chamorro name for the island is Luta. So it is the island where my mother was born. And that's where I got the company name. So two years ago yesterday was my incorporation date. So happy incorporation day to me. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but it was in March two years ago that I traveled to the island for only the second time in my life. It was, it was a very, very rough trip in the sense that, you know, um, my mother had passed from cancer about seven years ago. So two years ago, you know, it had been about five years. My aunt was passing from cancer. And so what I was going there for was, it was only the second time in my life that I'd been there. I was going to, to see my aunt, say goodbye, um, and to be there for my cousins and my aunts and, aunts and uncles. But I got there and, you know, I'm half Chamorro. I'm half native Pacific Islander, born and raised in Boston. Now, is, 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 is that a, a U.S.? So um, it, Guam is U.S. territory. And, and it's, is, is that and, as well? And the Northern Marianas are a commonwealth. Um, of, so basically, they are U.S. trust territory, so much like Puerto Rico. Uh, so anyone born on the islands is a U.S. citizen. But as my mother used to explain to me when I was a child, yeah. she said, I am a U.S. citizen. I did not have to immigrate to, this, you know, to the mainland. However, I am not considered a native son or daughter of the soil, and therefore I cannot become president. She said, but you were born in Boston, and you can. So the question is, are you running in 2020? You know, I haven't decided yet, and that's a completely honest answer. Okay. Have, have you, have you uh, 
So you don't even have like an exploratory committee yet. <laughs> you know what's very funny is uh, I could build an exploratory committee out of all of the Congress people that I've helped that I've helped advise over the last few years. I could, um, you know, I think I think it would be an interesting time to bring in a a true technology native president. I think that would be incredible. Look, uh, what little I've learned about how our government operates and how other governments operate is it's a strange dance and the dance is not always to the same music. It's like you're at one of those silent raves and you got your headphones on and you're trying to dance and and then somebody steps on your face. You know what I mean? So it's you you think you're dancing together but actually there's something else going on. And Honestly, um, some of the, it's not so much politics, it's actually, it's more, it's more leveraged around empathy and understanding of what are their goals? What are the other party's goals? What trades are we all willing to make? And how do we actually come out of this where everybody at least feels like they got something? I mean, that was, you know, that that's the key to any negotiation is it's not a successful nego- negotiation if somebody feels like they won and somebody feels like they lost. It's a successful negotiation when everybody walks away with at least something that they can say we got, you know. So I think it would be it would be uh, one very refreshing in certain ways, but it would also be, uh, you know, scary in that. The way the government works, there are inefficiencies, obviously, that can be improved upon, but there are reasons why certain things take a while, right? Even the whole Wassenaar process. It wasn't that our government didn't know what it was doing when it you know, made the agreement in the first place. None of those things are true. It's just that the emergence of computer science and specifically computer security is so new that it's incredibly hard to find detailed, technical, experienced practitioners who are willing and able to spare the time to go and inform those, those groups. And so they have mechanisms to doing, to doing that, such as the Commerce Department has technical advisory councils, right? But it's not like they had any hackers on those technical advisory councils. They had folks, you know, from industry and former military who could have a clearance of at least secret level and all of these things. And their pipeline for populating those councils worked in an era before the Internet speeds that we live in today. So I think, you know, undecided as to a presidential run in 2020. However open to it <laughs> great uh yeah yeah I, I you know touching on the the the, con- the congressional and lawmaker angle um that that zuckerberg testimony i feel like was a big watershed moment and it really exposed the knowledge gap between lawmakers and technology you know he spent five hours explaining how facebook worked you know explaining how cookie internet cookies work explaining how base a browser basically works and you know first of all i think there should be an age limit for these for these uh these representatives but they are representatives for a reason they represent a demographic that is represented by those people and that's you know that's a lot that's a big population of of just the united states who has that that knowledge gap, and that's just on on just how to use social media, and 
you know, I saw your your testimony. What was it, a couple months ago? Yeah. Um, what what committee were you in front of? Oh boy, it had so many words in it. Uh, but essentially, it was a subcommittee on data and consumer protection. That is like my shorthand yeah. version of it. That is not the official name of the subcommittee right. because it had so many adjectives. Um, but what was interesting about that was learning. That was my first time testi- testifying before uh, you know the U.S. Senate, certainly. Um, Learning about the the process from a first time uh, person, it was very very quick. Number one, they were scheduling it and figuring out who their witnesses were in you know within a couple of weeks' time. And I think part of that is just that they have to schedule everything in that you know all of their uh, so this is the staffers who work for the the senators are trying to you know balance all the schedules of everything the senators have to deal with. Um, but what was interesting was, you know, we had a couple of calls, um, and then they invited me to be one of the witnesses. Um, I think originally why they were calling me was they were told by by some of the other potential witnesses that, hey, on this particular subject, you should probably call Katie, right? And they, you know, they, they weren't necessarily aware of my history in this space. And so they were like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's nice. We'll, we'll just call her and see if we're missing anything in terms of our questions. But they really wanted to be informed by experts to ask the right questions and to help their senators know, um, you know, give them enough background that they could ask intelligent questions and everything. And here's the bit I will say about the age thing. On the one hand, there are folks who are who are quite a bit older than we are, who are the pioneers of computing, you know, modern computing. Vint Cerf and, and that whole crew, yeah. Right? And then there are those of us who I consider to be digital natives in that they grew up with the modern internet and smartphones as they are today. Yep. But just because they're digital natives doesn't make them digitally literate and certainly not security literate. They make a lot of assumptions and a lot of stuff is under the hood. The example I have is my younger sister is seven and a half years younger than me. I had to learn basic on a Commodore 64. It was all command line. There were no Windows. She grew up in a different computing era, and she is every bit as intelligent and self-driven as I am. However, she really didn't learn to program except a little bit of scripting much, much later in life because she didn't have to. And, you know, when I look at my lucky era of computing, it was like being a driver of an automobile of a Model T. You had to be a mechanic to make sure you could get that thing to work. And so we were in this strange era where folks who are a lot older than us, some of them may have the wisdom and experience and technological background to serve in those political roles from a place of knowledge from technology. And then we have younger people who are digital natives but digitally illiterate when it comes to the uh, what's under the hood. So I think we've got a double whammy in terms of needing to educate. Now, again, the, the experience of being um, you know, in this formal congressional hearing process was exhilarating. I mean, from, from the perspective of a kid who grew up in Massachusetts walking the Freedom Trail and, like, ducking under how short Paul Revere was, ducking under his door, you know, uh, at, on field trips and everything, this was amazing. It was great. Um, but what was interesting to me was that because of the formality of it, I don't think people know this, you have five minutes to give an oral, uh, you know, your oral part of your testimony. You can have longer written testimony. 
And then what happens is they take turns asking questions and that timer right in front of you is going for five minutes and it has to be inclusive of the question and all of the answers. And that is basically to promote fairness among, you know, the, the different, um, you know, members of the committee and different parties and everything. But what it also does is it, it caps the amount of nuance you're capable of, of presenting in that time period. So, you know, it, I would love to do it again if I could, you know, and everything. Um, but I think that that helping to inform the staffers to help inform the members of Congress, it's tricky. And it's tricky to try and get across the exact right technical points, especially when we're used to talking to our own people. We're used to talking to fellow technologists. Um, the one other story I will tell is, remember that high school computer science class? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was taught by the football coach, who was oh. awesome. You know, he was great. And he explained to us, he said, kids, look, I'm smart enough and all that, but I'm about a chapter ahead of, in the book that I'm teaching right now to you guys. And I'll tell you a story about my father. He grew up in the horse and buggy days. This is our teacher talking to us. And every once in a while, instead of hitting the brakes when I was teaching him how to drive a car, he'd yell, whoa, you know, because he was just used to what he was used to. And so he said to us, you know, there, there will be times when you guys are just going so fast that I'm going to yell, whoa. And the last example I'll give is my mother, the scientist from that little island, she was a reproductive endocrinologist. She made babies in a test tube, okay? She was a smart lady. Wow. Did she ever want to touch her printer and change her ink? No, she did not. She would wait for me to come and visit her. And I'd be like, Mom, you literally create human life in a test tube. You are a scientist. You are really good at this stuff. That Trust me, you're not going to break this machine. She's like, you know what, honey? I just, I just want you to do it. This is something that I've outsourced to you in my head, and I just want you to do it. So I don't know if it's an age thing. I think it's a, I think it's that endless curiosity, like how long does that go? And it's the ability to peek under the hood and make sure that even your assumptions about technology might be wrong, even if you are a digital native and are of the generation that grew up with this technology. Yeah, I I like that you use that analogy because I kind of feel like we're in an era now where everybody should try to start thinking like an infosec professional not be one i don't think it's to the point where where they have to be mechanics but i think they should at least be able to open up the hood check their oil and maybe change their oil like when they're when you're you're using a browser there's things going on in the browser that is more than just what you're seeing visually on the screen like how many people know that they can just see the source code for the HTML that represents everything they're seeing? I still think a lot of people don't know that. Like, and it's and it's so simple. It's right there. You don't need a command line. You don't need any of that right. crap. Just you right can just click. right click, yeah. and it's there. So, and and these browsers have developer tools, and you can go in there. And so you can, I I love this idea. Except, here's the thing. Do you feel like you should have to understand epidemiology? feel like you have a safe water supply in your house. So the whole thing, the, the, the idea that I would like to get across is that we can design systems that don't require the average user to know mm-hmm. everything or yeah. even a little bit. Like put it this way, one of the best ways that I've seen security implemented is such that it's transparent to what the user's use cases are. You run into problems when users are expected to know something that they don't know 
to make judgments um, of what to click and not to click and what to trust and not to trust based on things, cues that they don't necessarily know. I want it to be closer to the fact that if you go into your bathroom or your kitchen, you know that one side of the tap, hot water comes out. The other side of the tap, cold water comes out. And you don't even think about the fact that there's no cholera coming out at the same time. There is no waterborne pathogens that took tons of technologists and infrastructure and folks who, uh, you know, come up with not just the chemical treatment of the water, but understand epidemiology and have made it so that we have a safe water supply and don't have to think about it. I think that that's probably a more likely progression for keeping people safe is building frameworks that make it a lot harder for users to do something that circumvents the technology or requires them to have special knowledge in order to make the best decisions. Um, yeah, the, the last thing, you know, is that, that we have tried over the last couple decades of computing to improve the tools for developers such that they don't write as buggy code, right? We have better frameworks. We've got better, you know, type safe languages like Rust and all that that are coming aboard. But as we've done with experiments like this in the past with new platforms and new languages that are much more verifiably secure and harder to mess up from a security standpoint, what happens is they're only commercially viable if the users use them. Right, And they're only going to be used by the users if there are enough applications that the users want. So it's an entire ecosystem problem to get people moved off of those easily compromised and really easy to write new bugs, you know, types of platforms and technologies, moving the developer community into a safer, you know, safer language, safer frameworks that make it harder for them to make mistakes, therefore make it safer for the average user to not have to look under the hood so yeah i'd love it if everybody was a little bit of a hacker i mean that would you know certainly make my my job of educating policymakers a lot easier but i do believe in the fact that we shouldn't require all humans to be computer epidemiologists in order to be safe online yeah right? yeah that's that's fair enough but i don't know i'm not a hacker i don't you know i'm just I'm a curious soul, and I feel kind of like a, a, an affinity for, for, for the hacker mentality and the curiosity behind it. And I think if we could just encourage people to be more curious about what they're, they're, they're using, like even the, just that would be a nice step. Mm -hmm. Now, like I talked to my mom, and she's like, I heard the Russians are, are, are hacking all of our, our routers. Should, what should I do? I don't know. Should I change the password to the, how do I do that? Come help me. Right. You know? Like she just saw that on the news the other day. And, and so now I got, oh, great. What story is she talking about? Is this like a real thing? And, yeah. and, and apparently there was some, some news story about so, something related to that. But, uh, but yeah, I wish, I wish there was a way where she could see something like that and go, hmm, I wonder if that's affecting us or not. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe I'll look it up. Instead of just going, oh, my God, the Russians are after us, you know, type of thing. Right. Look, the Internet, as it was designed, was meant for openness. Like, you know, the MIT network was, was you know, very much uh, treated as an open and uh, safe network, you know, essentially. Um, I think that as we've added capacity onto what we expect the Internet to do for us, um, you know, not just as technologists, but as a society, I think that's where we've, you know, we've run into problems. We've uh, we've overused 
this broad, open communication mechanism that was built initially for either trusted systems to talk to each other only or to be an open academic exchange of ideas worldwide. And now we're running into this problem where we have to defend it. We've built all this stuff on top of it at a rate faster than we can possibly defend it. Um, I do think, though, that uh, the, the folks that are... The folks that are concerned about uh, state-sponsored hacking and government's hacking and everything, I usually, you know, this was also coming coming around when, uh, you know, when China was like the big, um, you know, nation-state hacking folks that 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 Congress was responding to, and you know, DOJ was was seeking indictments and all this stuff, and when everyone was obsessing about China hacking, and what are we going to do about that and everything, I, I basically said, look. Hacking is just another means of doing exactly the kind of state statecraft that was going on for centuries. And in fact, if you're worried about any particular country, um, just remember that everybody hacks everybody. Everybody spies on everybody. And in fact, the word that we got was from the French, espionage. So, I mean, never actually suspect that it's only, uh, you know, it's only something that our opponent nations are doing. Friendly nations do it to each other as well. And this has been going on. And some of them are good at at, Mm -hmm. at making it like not even known. How come you never hear about Israeli hackers or Israeli hacking? At least I don't hear that much. Well, and what's interesting about Israel is, you know, they just celebrated their 70th birthday as a country. You know, when you're talking about Israel and their capabilities, what I see in terms of their capabilities was a few things. One, they have a very exceptional pipeline straight from school into the military and it's into the military into their effectively, you know, what would be known as their cyber command. Um, It's known as being cool to be in the cyber command, you know, not necessarily joining the military to to fire weapons, um, you know, traditional weapons, but actually, you know, serving their country in that way. And then there's a there's a natural matriculation into, um, you know, into a thriving cybersecurity industry. So they have a really, really cool, you know, uh, ability to have this pipeline from childhood, natural curiosity and aptitude straight into functional and practical um you know, offense and defense in the cyber world straight into entrepreneurial world. So per capita, um, they have incredibly intense uh, hacking capabilities and cybersecurity capabilities. But they're also on a scale with a different mission and a different problem set than a lot of other countries, including the United States. So could we learn some lessons from their pipelining abilities? Sure. You know, I definitely want to identify children because they are, you know, absolutely natural hackers. I mean, just literally ask any child, you know, especially any child who's taken apart anything, um, that they're, they're natural hackers, they're naturally curious. To identify that aptitude young, I definitely want to be able to, to scale up in that department in the United States. I think that is something where we could do so much better. The only education I see for children um, around cybersecurity are things like how to stay safe online and not you know, succumb to online predators, which is very important, but that's not about a- identifying talent and aptitude and building the workforce of tomorrow. And that was actually, bringing it back full circle, that was part of what I was talking about this morning at my talk, was about the fact that we've got a great bug hunting ecosystem that has now been enabled and encouraged by all these bug bounty programs, but what are we doing in terms of stoking the pipeline 
for the defenders, the people who have to maintain systems and code, and the people who write new code. And that was the whole, you know, how are we striking this balance? Because quite frankly, I love breaking into things. I mean, super fun. Like I said, from childhood on, loved breaking into stuff. And actually, when I was a pen tester, my favorite type of engagements was Robin Banks. Love Robin Banks, you know. But the fact of the matter is, with that thrill of being able to hack into things, what are we doing to stoke the thrill of maintenance? Now, it doesn't sound sexy, but it has to become more of an attractive you know, uh, job uh, category and as celebrated a job category as hacking is today. Well, it's defense, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in the sporting world, especially basketball, defense wins championships. That's right. That's how you do it, is by stopping your opponent. You mm-hmm. shut your opponent down. I think there's way too much glorification of the red teams, and I think working towards making it cool to be blue would be or purple or whatever it is, make it cool to be a defender. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I, hey, I, I, I really appreciate you sharing all this with me. Thank you so much, Katie. Um, before we wrap up, I, I have to know. I, you know, I listened to Rally you on Rally Security. Oh yeah. And have you changed the battery in your um, uh, <laughs> smoke. Fire, smoke detector? <laughs> yes, I have. So uh, that was really funny because I had literally tuned it out, and they were freaking out. They were like, "What is that noise? I thought it was mine." I, I couldn't tune it out. <laughs> I was like, "Is there a bomb ticking in the background? What the hell is that?" Fi- finally, somebody like put two and two together and yeah. figured it out. Yeah. No. What was funny was um, so. So, you know, obviously I travel a lot, you know, and everything. Yeah. And my particular smoke detectors, um, if the if anything goes off, they have a they have like a basically a check beep. So it's not necessarily the battery. In that case, that one was the battery, but they're they would go off, um, not uh, not go off, go off, but they would do this, um, you know, you need to you need to check me because it's about an error message not being cleared out. So that would happen. So you'd actually have to press the button and clear the error messages out ma- manually and whatnot. And that would happen because my cooking is, um, let's say I like high temperature cooking. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I have to clear out the error messages a lot on, uh. on those uh, on those things. But that one in particular, it was a battery issue. I did change it. And Good. so the next time I do... You patched, a, a, finally. I did, yeah. So the next time I do have a podcast from my house, um, you know, it'll only be the cat that we have to block out. Because okay. he's very mouthy when I get on podcasts. What's your cat's name? His name is Scappy. He is named after a Python fuzzing tool because he is dumb and fuzzy. He's a dumb fuzzer. Um, and uh, no, he's a good cat. He just likes podcasts and he does two things. He either jumps up on me or meows really loudly or bites the power cords because apparently he knows how to get my attention. He's like, oh, she's talking on one of those things. I know. I'm just going to do this. He one time actually jumped up behind me in the middle of a recorded video news broadcast. So there is the, at like minute 56 of the of the it was a meltdown inspector one, actually. Uh-huh. And all you can see is you see me kind of lurch forward a little bit and a cattail right behind me. Uh-huh. So he has made cameos That's um, awesome. on the news. Yes, that is cool. Scappy. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, Katie. If people want to stalk you on the internet, where can they find you and your work? Well, my company is Luta Security. So if you want to get in touch with me, it's katie at lutasecurity.com. Um, if you want to stalk me on Twitter, it's katie Mo, but it's spelled K-8-E-M-0 and pronounced Katie 
Mo, not Kate Emo. That is so annoying. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I know, right? Now everyone's going to just call me that, Kate Emo. But especially considering how emphatically I say it's not Kate Emo. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah you're so, going to get trolled on that. Yeah, seriously. And, and then also my company's Twitter is Luta Security. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. It's been great. It was great to meet you. In great person, to meet you. Finally, yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Check out my bloggity blog at vincentthebay.com and hit me up on Twitter at Vince in the Bay. Until next time, ciao.